I'd like to welcome everyone this evening. Great to have you here. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of the International Relations Department, the director of the U.S. Center, both of which are uh, hosting, co-hosting uh, this evening. It's a great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor John Mearsheimer, the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. John has been at Chicago for over three decades, and during that time has generated a huge corpus of scholarly work, including major books about international politics and U.S. foreign policy, uh, such as The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, which won the Joseph Lebgold Book Prize, Conventional Deterrence, which won the Edgar Furness Book Prize Book Award, Why Leaders Lie, um, and uh, the book he's going to be talking about tonight, uh, The Great um, Delusion, Liberal Dreams in International Relations. His many books and scholarly articles are on IR reading lists around the world, uh, including our own right here. Graduate of West Point, former officer in the U.S. Air Force, John was elected to the American Academy of Arts in 2003. He's held distinguished fellowships and visiting appointments uh, at Harvard, the Brookings Institution, the Council on Foreign Relations, among others. And as you're going to learn firsthand tonight, he's also an outstanding teacher, having won teaching awards at the University of Chicago and Cornell University, where he received his PhD. Most of us in the IR community um, know John for uh, his um, penetrating scholarship. But another thing I think that really distinguishes um, him is his deep and long-standing uh, engagement in public affairs. And he's published dozens of articles in prominent public affairs magazines like Foreign Affairs, a London Review of Books, as well as many opinion pieces in, in, uh, you know, for popular venues like the New York Times. Indeed, I, I don't think anybody, John, to my knowledge, has accused you of, uh, you've been maybe accused of many things, but not being a, a shrinking violet when it comes to engaging in public debate. Uh, and for good reason, because across his career, he's taken a stand on many important issues of the day, from Bosnia to Arab-Israeli relations to the Iraq war uh, to the Ukrainian crisis. And we're very happy to have him here at the LSE tonight. We began talking about this, geez, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago, even before the book was submitted uh, to the press, um, to come to the LSE to share his thoughts about why U.S. foreign policy so often backfires and what can be done to set it straight. For those of you on Twitter, the suggested hashtag tonight is LSE Great Delusion. Um, what we're going to do, as usual, after the lecture, um, um, uh, as um, uh, isn't that, there it is. Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, yes, yeah, that is kind of funny. Um, as usual, uh, after the after the lecture, uh, we'll take questions from the audience. I'll do my level best to get as many of you in uh, as as possible. Um, there'll be an opportunity to purchase a copy of the book and get John to sign it if you're interested. There's copies uh, outside. And finally, I would just ask you, if you haven't already, to put your phone on silent, um, please do so. And with that, please join me in giving Professor John Mearsheimer a warm LSE welcome. 
Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Peter. Uh, thanks to LSE for inviting me to be here. Thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. I'm always deeply humbled uh, when people come to listen to me talk. Uh, as I was telling Peter before, I'm a Marxist, uh, not uh, Karl Marx, but Groucho Marx. Uh, I'd never want to belong to a club that had me as a member. Uh, so I'm always uh, so surprised when people come out. Uh, subject that I'm going to talk about tonight uh, is the Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, which is obviously what my book is all about. And uh, basically the story that I'm going to tell is that the United States pursued a foreign policy or a grand strategy of liberal hegemony after the Cold War ended. Uh, and the main aim of that strategy was to remake the world in America's image. I believe the policy has failed miserably. I believe it's one of the principal reasons that Donald Trump is in the White House. And I believe that the main reasons it failed was that every time liberalism runs up against nationalism and realism, which are the two most powerful isms on the planet, those two isms beat liberalism at every turn. And that's why we're in so much trouble today. Uh, these are the subjects that I want to take in that order. I want to tell you what I mean by liberalism, and of course I can't go into this in great detail, tell you what I mean by nationalism, then describe what liberal hegemony is, what I think the American foreign policy has been uh, since the early 1990s, talk about why the United States pursued that policy, <clears throat> what the track record is, and that will be a story about failure, uh, and then explain why it failed and then talk about the future. So that's the basic lay down for the talk. First question, what's liberalism? First thing to understand about liberalism is it's predicated on two simple assumptions. The first assumption has to do with whether or not you think human beings are fundamentally individuals who form social contracts or whether you think we're basically social animals from the get-go who carve out room for our individuality. <laughs> Liberalism is a political philosophy that assumes that we are individuals who form social contracts. That's why all the great liberal theorists are referred to as social contract theories. So liberalism is an ideology or a political philosophy that privileges the individual. Second point is, liberalism assumes that we cannot use our critical faculties to reach universal agreement or to come up with truths about first principles or questions having to do with the good life. You just can't do it. Uh, human beings are quite smart got a lot of instrumental rationality, but when it comes to getting people together and trying to reach agreement on issues like abortion or affirmative action or uh, negative rights versus uh, positive rights, it's very hard to get universal agreement. And sometimes there's going to be profound differences, and sometimes those differences are going to be so profound that people are going to kill each other. So those are the two key starting assumptions. And then the question sits at the heart of liberalism is how should politics be arranged to deal with this potential for violence? And the liberal solution has three parts to it. First is individual rights or inalienable rights to be more specific. 
This is the idea, again, focusing on the individual, that uh, every individual has a particular set of rights, and that means every individual on the planet. And what we do is we create a civil society where we give individuals plenty of maneuver room to lead the good life the way they say fit, the way they see fit. They have all sorts of rights to behave the way they want. This is what liberalism does. It, it, it doesn't resolve the differences between groups or between individuals. What it does is it gives them lots of space to act according to their own beliefs. Then the second element of the story is the norm of tolerance. We place in liberal societies a whole heck of a lot of emphasis on tolerance. And we place a lot of emphasis on tolerance because there is all this difference out there. And sometimes those differences are profound. And again, people end up killing each other. So what you want to do in a liberal society is preach tolerance. So first you preach rights, inalienable rights. Second, you preach tolerance. But of course, those two things alone are not enough in all cases. So you need a state that effectively acts as a night watchman to make sure that people don't kill each other. So in liberalism, there is a state. It's not a particularly strong state. And in fact, there is fear of a strong state in liberalism because it may impinge on individual rights. That's the basic solution. Now, I want to just focus on individualism and inalienable rights because this is what drives liberal hegemony. This is what drives American foreign policy. It took me a long time to realize this, but the individualism in liberalism, because it's inextricably linked with inalienable rights, which means that everybody has those rights on the planet, leads to a form of universalism. So there is a powerful universalistic dimension in realism that surrounds the concept of individual rights. And that's what gets liberal hegemony out of the train station. It's the fact that everybody on the planet has rights, and it's very important to protect those rights. It's a universalistic ideology based on an assumption regarding individualism. And I'll say more about this once I get to liberal hegemony. But that's my story about liberalism. Now there's nationalism. And of course, you know, today in Europe and in the United States, people are talking at great length about nationalism and liberalism and how they relate to each other. So this should be music to your ears. What's nationalism? Nationalism's core assumption is that human beings are naturally social animals. They're born into and heavily socialized into particular groups. You're an American, you're a Brit, you're a German, you're South African, right? You're born into these tribes, right? And individualism takes a back seat to group loyalty. Group loyalty is more important than individualism in the nationalism story. It's not to say you can't carve out room for individualism. But the group matters the most. And in the world that we live in today, aside from the family, the most important group is the nation. This is my definition of nationalism. I don't think it's a terribly controversial definition. It's a set of political beliefs which hold 
that a nation, a body of individuals with characteristics that purportedly distinguish them from other groups should have their own state. There are these nations out there that want their own state. You go to Catalonia today, right? People there really want their own state. You go to Quebec, the Quebecois. There are lots of Quebecois who want their own state. Uh, I often talk to students about uh, Theodore Herzl, uh, the father of Zionism. His great book, Herzl's great book, was called The Jewish State. Just think about the words, The Jewish State. Jews are a nation, should have their own state, the Jewish state. What do the Palestinians want? Palestinian state. What do we talk ad nauseum about it? Two-state solution. Two-nation states. One for the nation called the Palestinians, one for the nation called the Jews. Right? So nationalism is inextricably bound up with the whole concept of a nation state. Sovereignty. Very important to understand just how important the concept of sovereignty is for nationalism. Nations place enormous importance on sovereignty or self-determination, which is why they want their own state. You want your own state so you can determine your own fate and you can maximize your chances of survival. Right. And very importantly, because nation states, not just nations, but nation states place a very high premium on sovereignty, and self-determination. Think about the United States of America. Think about how angry we get about those Russians interfering in our election. Who are they to interfere in our election? To violate American sovereignty. Not allowed to do that, right? Of course, the United States runs all over the world interfering in everybody else's. <laughs> but we'll get, to, we'll get to that in due course. But nation states privilege sovereignty. They don't like others interfering in their politics. And that leaves them in powerful ways to resist foreign interference. So the question is, when nationalism bumps up against liberalism, who wins? And the answer is that nationalism wins every time. It's a much more powerful ism. First of all, it's because human beings are social animals. We're not individuals, first and foremost. We're social animals. And we carve out room for our individualism as we move along. We belong to tribes, and those tribal loyalties are very powerful. And in this day and age, as I'm trying to emphasize here, it's nationalism. And if you look at the planet today, really quite amazing. The planet is remarkably homogeneous in that it's covered by nothing but nation states. If I gave you a map of Europe in 1450 and I gave you three weeks to memorize that map, you wouldn't be able to do it because it's so friggin' complicated. There are douches and principalities and city-states and empires and thises and thats. You can't figure out what's going on. There's no nation states. That's not what the world looks like today. The world is filled with nation states. All nation states. It's the power of nationalism. Liberal democracies? There are liberal democracies out there. But the system has never been comprised of more than 50% liberal democracies. It's always been less than 50%. And since 2006, according to Freedom House, the number of liberal democracies is declining. And then my final point is that you want to understand that all liberal democracies are liberal nation states. Britain is a nation state. The United States is a nation state. They're both paradigmatic liberal states, but they're liberal nation states. 
So those are my definitions and the point I'm trying to make here is that I think nationalism is the more powerful of the two isms. And I'll say more about this, of course. All right, what's liberal hegemony? This is American grand strategy and which should be dear to the hearts of all the Brits in the audience because you basically went along with us on this enterprise. Liberal hegemony has three goals, all done in support of an attempt to remake the world in America's image. That's really what the United States has been trying to do since the early 1990s, remake the world in its own image. And the first, important, first and most important element in that strategy was to spread democracy all over the planet. This has been the primary goal of the United States and its West European allies. Second goal is to integrate more and more countries into the open international economy. The idea is what you want to do is get as many states as possible, but certainly major states like Russia and China deeply embedded in the international economy. You want to get them hooked on capitalism. You want to get them Uh, to a point where they're economically interdependent with all sorts of other states in the system. And then finally, and this goes along with that goal, that second goal, you want to get those countries, and again, you want to place special emphasis on the major powers, you want to get them into international institutions. You want them in the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank. You want them to become responsible stakeholders. Right? And of course, if they are democracies, that's likely to happen. Now the question is, why are we interested in doing this? Uh, you know, what are the benefits of liberal hegemony? If you think about it, there are three benefits. First of all, it eliminates significant human rights violations. For liberal democracies, rights really matter. And again, rights are inalienable. So when you have massive violations of individual rights in any country in the world, those liberal democracies have a powerful impulse to interfere in the politics of that country and shut down the trouble and try to fix things. Well, there's a simple way to deal with this problem, and that is to turn every country on the planet into a liberal democracy. Because if every country is a liberal democracy, the record is quite clear. You're not going to have many massive violations of individual rights. So if you privilege individual rights, the best way to secure individual rights for the most number of people is to spread liberal democracy all over the world. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two, which I'm sure all of you know very well, is basically democratic peace theory, which could be called liberal democratic peace theory, right? In other words, if you are able to turn the planet into nothing but liberal democracies, you get peace, love, and dope. This is Frank Fukuyama's famous argument. Frank Fukuyama's peace is, in very important ways, a template for liberal hegemony. Remember, at the end of Frank's peace, he said, the biggest problem that mankind is going to face in the future is boredom. That's what he says. It's going to be boredom. Nobody's going to be fighting anymore. Why? 
because liberal democracies don't fight other liberal democracies. And oh, by the way, you're worried about proliferation? You're worried about terrorism? Once you create a world that's peaceful, those problems are taken off the table. So you solve the proliferation problem and you solve the terrorism problem by creating a peaceful world. So just think about it, right? You eliminate significant human rights violations and you make for a more peaceful world. And then finally, to use Woodrow Wilson's terminology, you make the world safe for liberal democracy. One of the real problems with liberal democracies is that there are always people in those liberal democracies who don't like liberal democracy. I was reading in the New York Times about how the German government is now thinking about going after this right-wing German party that's emerging and now has seats in parliament, right, because they don't like liberal democracy. Well, if you don't like liberal democracy, you're a threat to liberal democracy, right? And, and, and liberal democracies don't like that. When I was a young boy, lots of communists in the United States, they told us, I grew up outside New York City in a town that had lots of communists. I went to school with lots of red diaper babies. I did. <laughs> and uh, we were very worried about that, you know, the government, because they didn't like liberal democracy. And the great fear is that those communists would be able to turn to the Soviet Union or a communist state and get assistance and undermine liberal democracy from within. Well, there's a simple solution to this problem. Turn every country on the planet into a liberal democracy, and those who are discontent within your borders have nobody to turn to on the outside. Right? You make the world safe for liberal democracy. So this is really what fueled it. Now, next question is, why did we do this? I mean, aside from the benefits, we, we never did it before the early 1990s. Why did we do it? First and most importantly, unipolarity made it possible to largely ignore balance of power politics and pursue a liberal foreign policy. If you live in a world where there are other great powers, if you're the United States and you live in a world where there's Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, the Soviet Union, China down the road, Russia down the road. You have to worry about realpolitik. You have to worry about the balance of power. You can do liberal things on the margins, but the essence of your foreign policy has to be all about power. Right? I'm going to talk about this at the end, but you can see this happening in the United States now with regard to China. Right? We're beginning to put our gun sights on China, right? liberal hegemonies in the rearview mirror. But that wasn't the story in the early 1990s. The early 1990s, the Cold War ends, right? and then in December 1991, the Soviet Union goes down the toilet bowl, and the United States is Godzilla. Right? It's incredibly powerful. It doesn't have to worry about the balance of power. So it's in a unipolar world that you can pursue liberal hegemony. And we were in a unipolar world. And then, of course, the second condition is the United States is a profoundly liberal country. And that is especially true with regard to the elites. And by the way, it's especially true here in large parts of Europe. Countries like Germany, countries like Britain. That's why you went along with all these harebrained schemes that we came up with. You're a profoundly liberal country. You believe all this stuff, right? Then, and this is a very important point, and I don't think I made it in the book. I think I thought it up after I wrote the book. <laughs> don't tell anybody that. But 
American nationalism. And you understand what John is saying up here. Every country is a nation state, and every country is nationalistic, and that includes the United States of America as well. We are a highly nationalistic country, as is Britain, but we never talk that way. We emphasize liberalism. You go to Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago, Probably half the library is filled with books on American liberalism. You can't even find one shelf worth of books on American nationalism because we don't talk about it. But we are a very nationalistic state. And when you're nationalistic, you tend to be chauvinistic, right? But let me just go to Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright, of course, card-carrying liberal hegemonist. Nobody would ever call her a nationalist. But I want you to think of what Madeleine Albright's most famous saying is. She was asked in the late 1990s when she was, I believe, Secretary of State at the time, why the United States was roaming all over the planet, interfering in everybody's politics. And she said, it's because we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further. Now just think about those words. Just that word, we. As soon as I see we, we, the other, we, the other. We are the indispensable nation. There's the word. We are the indispensable nation. And then go back to that word indispensable. That's the chauvinism that's always there with nationalism. We're special, right? We're the city on the hill, right? There's, there's something about America that, that, that gives it the right, the responsibility. And now we have the power in unipolarity to police the globe and make it look like the United States of America. So what I'm telling you is that nationalism actually reinforced right, liberalism. And because we were so powerful, I often say that the two most important articles written at the end of the Cold War were Frank Fukuyama's piece uh, and Charles Krauthammer's piece uh, in Foreign Affairs called The Unipolar Moment. And basically, Krauthammer made this point right here. And Fukuyama made this point right here. And then you just throw in Madeleine Albright, and you're off to the races. And this is why the United States so vigorously pursued this policy. And again, you want to remember what we thought the benefits were. Quite profound benefits, if it worked. Okay, liberal hegemony's track record. I could spend a couple hours on this. Uh, I want to talk about the Bush Doctrine in the greater Middle East. I want to talk about the Ukraine crisis and what that did to U.S.-Russia relations, and then the failure of engagement with China. The Bush Doctrine was all about turning the greater Middle East into a sea of democracies. Iraq was not supposed to be the first stop on the train line. It was not. When the Israelis caught wind in early 2002 that we were going to do Iraq, they sent a high-level delegation to the United States. They said, why are you doing Iraq? You should be doing Iran. And uh, I know you're shocked to hear that. The Bush administration and the neoconservatives said to the Israelis at the time, what you don't understand is when we're done with Iraq, then we're going to do either Syria or Iran. The order doesn't matter. And probably after we do one more, everybody will throw their hands up and bandwagon with us because they'll see how incredibly powerful we were. Because you remember, we were very optimistic about how this whole enterprise was going to work in the early 1990s, right? Uh, and it looked initially that, like we had won a great victory in Afghanistan. You can never underestimate 
this factor for explaining why we went into Iraq. By December 2001, we go into Iraq in, mid in Afghanistan in mid-October 2001. By December 2001, we've installed Karzai. It looks like we're getting out of town. It looks like you know, we really have found the magic formula. And initially, it looks like we found the magic formula in Iraq. Then, of course, everything goes south in uh, Iraq, and the Taliban come back from the dead, and everything goes south in Afghanistan. Right? And we make a giant mess in Syria. The American media, and I'm sure it's true of the European media as well, say the Obama administration did nothing in Syria. Right? This is evidence of American retreat from power. This is nonsense. We played a key role in creating all the murder and mayhem in that country. <laughs> we were funding and supporting the insurgents who were trying to throw the Assad overthrow the Assad regime. We were deeply committed to overthrowing the Assad regime. We made a total mess in Libya. Right? I could go on and on. And uh, it was a failure. The Bush doctrine was a colossal failure. And the number of deaths that we're responsible for is just hard to imagine. Uh, I've often thought at some time I'd like to take a couple months and just sort of come up with a balance sheet on how much uh, murder and mayhem, how much destruction we've caused in the greater Middle East. Uh, and this is all designed to facilitate the spread of democracy. Then comes the Ukraine crisis. The conventional wisdom here in Europe and certainly in the United States is that, of course, it's the Russians' fault. It's Putin's fault, right? And, uh, and, and by the way, it was good that we were moving NATO eastward because we were right all along that Putin was highly aggressive. Uh, my view on this is exactly the opposite. First of all, if you look at the decision-making process that led to NATO moving eastward, there is virtually no evidence that we thought the Russians were going to attack into Ukraine or take Crimea or were a threat that had to be contained or deterred the way we did things in the uh, Cold War. And in fact, if you look at the underlying logic behind NATO expansion, right, which was part of a broader program that included NATO expansion, EU expansion, and the color revolutions. You all remember the orange revolution in Ukraine, right, and similar revolutions in places like Georgia. Well, this is liberal hegemony. This is liberal hegemony at play. What we were doing is we were taking these institutions like the EU and NATO, moving them eastward, incorporating more and more states into them. We're taking the EU eastward all for the purposes of getting everybody firmly hooked on capitalism, creating economic interdependence. And the color revolutions, the Rose Revolution, the Orange Revolution, they were all designed to help spread democracy. And that's the terms we talked in. If you talk to Mike McFall, who was the uh, uh, American ambassador to uh, Russia, before the crisis uh, in February 2014, he will tell you he talked to Putin on numerous occasions, and he told Putin he had nothing to worry about regarding NATO expansion. Madeleine Albright, you can go home and Google it, she told Putin on numerous occasions he had nothing to fear from NATO expansion because we were not executing NATO expansion in conjunction with EU expansion, the color revolutions, for the purposes of containing Russia. 
This was liberal hegemony. We were taking this security community, to use Karl Deutsch's terms, that we had created in Western Europe during the Cold War, and we were going to move that security community eastward. We were a benevolent hegemon. The problem was the Russians didn't see it that way. This is called realism, right? It's called realpolitik. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it's really, it just shows you how remarkably naive and foolish American policymakers and British policymakers and German policymakers were. The idea that you think you could take a NATO, a military alliance that had been a mortal foe of the Soviet Union, and march that up to Russia's borders and tell them it's a benign institution and they have nothing to worry about is laughable. Right? We in the Western Hemisphere have what's called the Monroe Doctrine. And basically, the Americans believe that we own the Western Hemisphere and no European great power or no Asian great power is allowed to put military forces in the Western Hemisphere. There are enough old dogs in this room to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. You remember how ballistic we went when the Soviets put missiles in Cuba? And then they talked about creating a naval base at Cienfuegos. Are you kidding me? That is categorically unacceptable. Fast forward 25 years. Let's assume China is really powerful. They decide that they're going to put military forces in Mexico and Canada. Who's ever president at the time is going to say, oh, that doesn't matter. Right? You think that's going to happen? I can guarantee you that's not going to happen. Right? And all their trouble really started in 2008. We got away with the first expansion of NATO in 1999. That was Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary. And then the second big tranche in 2004 brought in the Baltic states, Romania, Slovenia, Slovakia. They all came in in 2004. But then, at the Bucharest summit in April 2008, the Americans insisted that we say at the end of the summit that Ukraine and Georgia would become part of NATO. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's no accident, that was April 2008, that in August 2008, you had a war over Georgia. And then in 2014, you had a war over Ukraine. And the Russians have made it very clear that they will wreck Ukraine rather than let it become part of the West. And they'll wreck Georgia rather than let it become part of the West. They're not going to have a Georgia or a Ukraine that is part of the West on their doorstep. And of course, this gives the Russians huge incentives to do everything they can to wreck NATO. It gives them huge incentives to do everything they can to wreck the EU. And it causes all sorts of problems in Eastern Europe. And I don't believe the Russians created this problem. I believe we are the taproot of the problem. And it was not realpolitik. By the way, virtually every realist I know was against the Iraq war and the Bush doctrine. Virtually every realist I know supports that interpretation. And getting to the whole subject of China, right? How do you deal with China? Here it is, in the early 1990s, China's rising, continues to rise through the 1990s, and the basic view of liberal hegemonists is that if we get it embedded in the open international economy, get it embedded in international institutions, it will become a democracy, 
and it will, in Robert Zellick's terms, become a responsible stakeholder. A realist like me says, are you kidding? You're going to turn China into Godzilla when you can't tell me for certain what China's intentions are going to be in 20, 30 years? <laughs> no way I'd do that. You might not be able to prevent it, but I'm certainly not going to facilitate it. But no, we didn't practice containment. We practiced engagement. It's very clear. Engagement has failed. And some of the principal proponents of that strategy in the 90s and in the early 2000s now admit that the strategy has failed. So this is the track record. Think the Middle East. Think U.S.-Russia relations and the Ukraine crisis. And think China and where that one is now headed. Why did liberal hegemony fail? I've already told you what my argument is. Power of nationalism, power of realism, overselling of individual rights. Power of nationalism. Nationalism is all about sovereignty and self-determination. The idea that the United States of America can run around the world interfering in the politics of other countries to the point where it invades some of those countries and tries to reorder their politics is a prescription for disaster. Uh, going into Afghanistan, you know, the British were in Afghanistan once. The Soviets were in Afghanistan once. When we went in, I said to myself, this is going to be a disaster. Just tell you a quick story. Back in 1979, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, virtually everybody in the national security community was aghast. Oh, my God, the Soviets are on the march, right? They're an expansionist power. Uh, we have all sorts of reasons to worry about this. My view is exactly the opposite. They just jumped into a giant quagmire. They invaded Afghanistan. Vietnam, Charles de Gaulle told us. 64, 65, do not go in there. We've been there, done that. It did not work out very well, right? We went in, it did not work out very well, right? I remember in 1979, the Chinese went into North Vietnam. They got their snouts whacked too. You do not want to invade countries and occupy them. Iraq, you're asking for really big trouble. Do you think the Iraqi people want us coming in and telling them what their politics should be? Just think about how the Americans and the Brits recoil at the idea of the Russians interfering in their politics. They don't want us coming in. You invariably get resistance. I was a young guy, you know, 1965 to 1975, Peter was referring to my military service. I was in the American military from 65 to 75, just coterminous with the Vietnam War. There's one thing I learned in those years, and why people like George W. Bush didn't learn it, and Dick Cheney, is you want to stay out of places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam. And in fact, if you're in a security competition with another great power, you want to encourage that great power to jump into one of those quagmires. <laughs> I used to tell the Chinese in the early 2000s, I'd go to China, and I'd say, you know what you ought to tell the Americans? You'd tell them that you're counting on them to win the global war on terror, and they have to stay in Iraq and Afghanistan until they win. They'll be there forever, grinding their army into the ground, wrecking their economy. Stay out of those places, right? But we had all these dreams about what we were going to do. Didn't work out too well. That's nationalism. Then power realism. I've told you that story with regard to Russia, right? Uh, the idea that you can drive NATO right up to their border and they're not going to pay attention. The Chinese, talk to the Chinese today. Ask them how happy they are 
or how happy they have been over the past 25 years with the American Navy and the American Air Force running ships and aircraft up and down their coastline. They don't like it at all. And they'll tell you that when the time comes, they're going to do everything they can, if they can, to push us out of East Asia. They're going to have their own Monroe Doctrine. Oh, Russians in Syria, right? That's realpolitik. Russians have a naval base in Syria. They have a long-standing alliance with Syria. They see that Assad's going under. They see that the Americans are behind this. The Americans may try to install a leader who will be anti-Russian. The Russians move in. They balance against us. And they win, by the way, not us. We lose because Assad is staying in power. And then finally, there's the overselling of individual rights. The truth is that rights do matter, and most people around the world care about rights, but they don't care that much in a lot of places. If you go to Russia today and you talk about individual rights and you talk about liberalism and democracy, they shake their head and they say, we associate that with the 1990s. Thank you, we'll take Putin. Soft authoritarianism beats liberal democracy, right? You might not agree with that. I don't agree with that. But the fact of the matter is, going back to liberalism's first principles, founding assumptions, it's very hard to get agreement on first principles. And it's not like everybody on the planet thinks that individual rights are that important. Okay. Liberal hegemony's future. I want to make two points. Liberal hegemony is finished for two reasons. The, fir the first is the coming of Donald Trump. If you think about Donald Trump's campaign platform, he ran hook, line, and sinker against liberal hegemony. He said, we're getting out of the business of spreading democracy across the planet, and as you all know, He's not met a dictator or authoritarian leader he didn't want to jump into bed with, right? <laughs> so we're out of that business. Open international economy, he has very powerful protectionist tendencies. He does not like the open international economy at all. He thinks we, the United States of America, have been screwed, and he has an America first policy, and he plans to change things. And he's willing to put tariffs not only on adversaries or potential adversaries like China, but he's willing to put uh, tariffs on allies. And with regard to institutions, remember that's the third leg of the triad, this guy's never seen an institution he didn't love. NATO, the EU, the IMF, oh, the WTO, NAFTA. He hates institutions. TPP. Right? He ran against liberal. He, he ran. He ran against liberal hegemony, hook, line, and sinker, and he was elected. And it looks like he's going to implement his policy views. But the truth is, it doesn't matter very much anyway because of the second reason, and that's the rise of China and the resurrection of Russian power. Almost all the people I know in the security world believe that unipolarity is behind us, and we are now moving or are in a multipolar world. And in a multipolar world, you have security competition as the dominant feature that underpins American foreign policy. And you can see in our behavior towards China and our behavior towards Russia that this is becoming 
the central focus of our attention. And liberal hegemony is of less and less importance. So my bottom line, my closing point, is that when you take into account that Donald Trump is the president and he ran against liberal hegemony, and you take into account that unipolarity is history and we're now moving into multipolarity, liberal hegemony has no future. And I think that this is ultimately a good thing. However, the one caveat is the thought that the United States now has to deal with China scares me greatly. Thank you. So I thought you said you didn't sleep on the flight over. I'm exhausted <laughs> just watching you. Um, John, thanks very much for that very engaging and provocative lecture. Um, I, have, I have questions here, but I know there's going to be a lot of questions. So I think what I'm going to do is just open it up directly. And the first hand to go up is back there in the middle. So we'll start there. You should have one question. Uh, uh, hi, John. Please do yep. yeah, one question each. And could you just briefly introduce yeah. yourself? Yeah, I'm, uh, my name is Yao Ming. I'm actually an accountant by trade, but I do have an interest in uh, IR. Uh, my question is, uh, you mentioned China at the end of your talk, uh, John. Uh, how likely do you think uh, there's going to be a confrontation between China and the United States? Okay, hold that. Let's take another question. How about the woman right next to you, right there? Nope, down. There you go. Yeah, um... My name is Maria, I'm a first year IR student and I'm from Russia. And my question is, was the reason why U.S. started to follow the policy, started uh, to follow the path of being a uh, liberal hegemon, was it, for, was it influenced by the U.S. desire to be an economic hegemon? And one down here, how about that gentleman right there? in the black coat, yeah, yeah. Hold on, one sec, wait for the mic. I know you're excited. He's excited, you're excited, okay. Um, hi. Okay, yeah. It's working. Hi, my name's David, I'm a, I'm a master's of, oh my God. <laughs> M Science, M Science IR student. Um, my question was, uh, I can very much see how there is um, a defensive realist logic in not, in not doing any NATO expansion, um, and that because like one would want one um, that there might be a defensive reason for not doing NATO, NATO expansion. But if you consider that if Russia's economy were to grow after the catastrophe of the 1990s, that wouldn't they try to resurrect kind um, a sphere of influence, and wouldn't they try to gobble up those um, Eastern European countries in the same way? So, could there, as an offensive realist, could you see an explanation for NATO expansion? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> your name was David, right? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, Yao Ming asked the first question about how likely I think a confrontation between China and the United States is. This is a whole separate topic and one which I could talk on all day. In fact, I'm going to talk at lunchtime at Oxford tomorrow on the subject if you want to come out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, my view is that China cannot rise peacefully and let me define what I mean by peacefully. 
I believe there will be an intense security competition between the United States and China and a serious possibility of actual shooting or fighting between them. And my basic logic is that China, for good realist reasons, is going to try and dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. I'm somebody who believes that in a world where there's no higher authority, the best way to survive is to be really powerful, and you don't want to be weak. The Chinese understand, witness the century of national humiliation, what happens when you're not powerful. So if you're China, you want to make sure you are much more powerful than every state in your region. And number two, you want to do everything you can to get the Americans out of Asia, and you want to dominate Asia yourself. The Americans will not tolerate that, and the Americans will push back. And that's what will cause the security competition and the possibility of real war. I could go on, but in the interest of time, I won't say more. Uh, Maria asked me the question uh, whether liberal hegemony was uh, motivated by America's interest in economic hegemony. I would make the argument that it was enabled by our economic hegemony. It was the fact that we were so powerful economically and militarily when the Cold War ended that we were in a position to fashion this um, liberal international order. And uh, we, we were not, at least I don't see any evidence of us trying to screw or shortchange other countries. As I said when I talked about China, what's really amazing is that we were interested in helping to accelerate Chinese growth. We were deeply committed not to using our hegemony to keep the Chinese down, but to get China into the open international economy, into institutions like the WTO, and helping it to grow. Because our operating assumption was that that China would become a happy China. It would become a peaceful China. It would become a responsible stakeholder. So I think, I, I, I think the answer is no to your question. Uh, David's uh, question about NATO expansion. You know, is it justified now that John's talking about a resurrection of Russian power? If there's a resurrection of Russian power, maybe it's good that we're there. There is a resurrection of Russian power for sure compared to the 1990s. But... China, excuse me, but Russia is not a strong great power. It's, this kind of sounds funny, it's a weak great power, and its long-term trajectory does not look good, in good part for demographic reasons, but also because it hasn't modernized its economy. It's in many ways kind of a giant oil station or a giant gas station, right? So it, its future is not very bright. The other thing is, I believe you can't sell this argument in the West. The Russians have no interest in trying to conquer Eastern Europe. They did take Crimea back, but Crimea is a special case, right? In fact, as I often say when I talk on this matter, if you really want to wreck Russia, what you ought to do is encourage Russia to try and conquer Ukraine. It's my point about, you know, invading Afghanistan, right? The Russians would be crazy to go back into Eastern Europe. Been there, done that. They don't want to do that. Right? That's why I think NATO expansion was unnecessarily provocative. 
Let's take another round of questions. We'll go to the woman in the back there. Yeah. All the way to the back. Sorry. <laughs> another round. Hello. Um, first, I want to say it's such an honor to meet you. I, I st started studying social sciences eight years ago, studying your articles. Um, so it's such an honor to actually meet you. My name is Stella. I'm a master's student studying international development here at LSE. And at our course, we learn a lot about the role of institutional, institutional strength in building um, for developing countries. And my question is, within your predictions of liberal hegemonic fall, do you necessarily see the weakening of these liberal institutions, such as the, uh, the WTO, um, NATO, um, and these institutions? And do you also predict that there will be no institutions, just like politics and states um, working politics, or do you predict that there will be multipolar institutions, sort of like the Cold War, but like three of them? Okay, hold that thought. The woman in the red right here, just a couple rows up, passed over. Thank you. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Pupak. I, I am Iranian, I'm, and I have a, a PhD in international relations from <laughs> University of York, and now working as a multimedia journalist in London. Uh, my question for you is that do you think if uh, countries go basically towards mere nationalism and stay out of multipolarity and liberal democracy, can they be able to tackle more of their domestic and regional problems? For example, can Iran survive uh, economic sanctions if they decide to stay out of uh, regional affairs? Thank you. And uh, gentlemen, all the way in the back in a gray sweater or a sweatshirt, yeah, right there. Ida, in this um, crazy world, what would you do if you were Theresa May at the moment to protect... <laughs> ..to protect Britain's long-term interests in the world? There you go. Want to take them in reverse order? Or? Yeah. <laughs> I think about that one as you go through. No reason to be delicate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, first, the first question was from the woman in the rear about, yes. about institutions. Uh, and my, my thinking about institutions has changed uh, quite a bit over the past few years. Uh, I, I think that there is no way that the modern world can work without powerful institutions a lot of powerful institutions. Institutions are basically rules. And in a highly interdependent world, you need lots of rules to facilitate economic intercourse. If you build a military alliance, right, like uh, NATO or the Warsaw Pact, it has to be heavily institutionalized. So Donald Trump can rail all he wants against institutions and sort of pretend that we're going to get rid of these institutions and we're going to be in an institution-free or an institution-light world, okay? But he's dreaming. It's not going to happen, right? Now, I don't believe that institutions can coerce great powers to do things they don't want to do, right? I don't believe institutions are that powerful. But what I'm telling you is I think that they're very important. I think today that they're more important than I thought they were when I wrote my uh, piece on institutions back in 1994, 1995. So I don't find it at all surprising. We have that on tape. Yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't change my basic argument about, about the coercion logic, but... 
But I, do, I just do think they're very important. And with regard to the futures, I have a paper coming out called The Rise and Fall of the Liberal International Order, where I predict what it's going to look like in the future, which was the second part of your question. Send me an email and I'll send you the paper. Okay. The second question on the Iranian... Uh, You're going to get a lot of emails. The, the, <clears throat> on, on, yeah. On the Iranian question, uh, it's an interesting question, just on nationalism and sanctions. Sanctions is really all about punishing a country. And what the Bush, not the Bush, the, uh, the Trump administration is going to try and do is inflict massive punishment on uh, Iran, uh, on the public, and in theory, the public will put pressure on the regime. The regime will throw its hands up and cave in to the Americans, right? That's the basic theory. I've studied the whole subject of punishment and how it affects nation states, and it does not work very well. Nationalism is a very powerful force. I was in Iran in December of 2017. I think I'm one of very few Americans to get a visa to get into Iran. I was there in December 2017. I talked to lots of people, uh, you know, across the political spectrum, up and down, and uh, I do not believe they're going to bend. These are very proud people. Nationalism is a very powerful force in that country, and we will inflict a lot of pain on them, I'm sure, but I don't think they're going to bend. Uh, there are cases where countries bend, so it's not impossible. But if I had to bet, I'd bet nationalism uh, will win there. Theresa May? The, the question about Theresa May. <laughs> you know, in preparation for coming over here, I read lots of articles on the subject. So if I went to dinner with people like him, I could say something intelligent. <laughs> the truth is, I have nothing intelligent to say. <laughs> I really don't know what to say. Uh. So before we go to the next round of questions, I wanted to, you know, I was struck that you, you brought something into the talk that wasn't in the book, the Madeleine Albright thing. I don't think it is. I'm yeah, not, I, I'm I, not I, 100%. It's, it's been a long time since it went to the press. <laughs> That's but, right. Um, Early Alzheimer's. Uh, but I, um, but I, I was also struck that you, in, in the book, the last chapter of the book, lays out an alternative strategy what you call the strategy of restraint. And I think it was kind of um, trumped here in a way, not by the reference to Trump, but by, by China. And I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about what that strategy looks like, the, basically the alternative to liberal hegemony, and as you frame it. And, um, and maybe what you see as maybe the potential downsides or risks, because every strategy has some risks. Yeah, I, I laid out a policy that called for restraint, and restraint is based on realism plus a healthy appreciation of nationalism. And realists, by and large, believe that there are three areas of the world worth fighting and dying for. Uh, one is East Asia, two is Europe, and three is the Persian Gulf. And the other areas of the world, you should stay out. They're not worth fighting and dying for. This is not to say you should not be involved economically and diplomatically, but in terms of where you use military force, realists really have a rather circumscribed view of the places we should fight. 
And, and you understand that liberal hegemonists don't prioritize because individualism leads to universalism. They want to fight all over the planet, right? Because the name of the game is to create a sea of democracies. So those would be the three areas I would focus on, right? And I would go to great lengths, this is in appreciating the importance of nationalism, not to fight uh, wars in small countries in any of those areas, and certainly outside of those areas. Right? We should have never fought the Vietnam War. It was a huge mistake. We should never have gone into Iraq. And uh, if anybody's thinking about invading Iran, uh, that would be a remarkably foolish uh, idea. So, so the argument is that stay out of those small wars, stay out of the business of promoting liberal democracy at the end of a rifle barrel. Focus on those other three areas. Now my view is the only time you have to station military forces in those three regions is when, is when there is a potential hegemon. I, I would have pulled American forces out of Europe. I would have ended NATO when the Cold War ended. I would have brought uh, those forces home and I would have either not spent the money or spent the money on uh, 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 American building up American infrastructure and you know helping the American people, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be you know fighting here, there, and everywhere. Uh, now, Syria today, I'd get out of Syria. Syria doesn't matter. The United States. What what are the costs of pulling out of Syria? What are the costs of pulling out of Afghanistan? In my opinion, there are no costs at all. So the Russians control Syria. See, here's my thinking. Let the Russians control Syria, right? That place is going to be enormously expensive to rebuild. And the question is, who's going to rebuild it? Let them rebuild it. And furthermore, why do I worry about Syria? Oh, I'm going to worry about ISIS? Are we serious? ISIS is a serious threat to the United States? I mean, I understand it's heresy to say these things in the liberal West at this point in time, but it escapes me how ISIS is a major threat to the United States. And in fact, we created ISIS by knocking off Saddam Hussein. If we hadn't invaded Iraq, there'd be no ISIS, right? So, you know, let's get out of those places. So that, that's really what I'm talking about. Okay. How about that gentleman right back up there? Yeah, hold your hand up. We'll go there. Thank you. Uh, Paul McRail, Peace News. Can you say something about the, the seeming contradiction between uh, the present U.S. president w wishing to be a, a, not an isolationist, but withdrawing you know, the troops and downsizing, and yet he's gung-ho on increasing the U.S. defense budget. It's now up to what, $760 billion. Is this something to do with Eisenhower's comment regarding the, um, the danger of the industrial military complex? Um, how about that gentleman right down there? Yeah. Hello, my name is Adam Koesh, and I was an IR student here last year. Uh, first, the, the quote about Madeleine Albright is, is actually in the book and the nationalism as well. It is in the book? Yes. Uh, but, Thank you. Uh, my question is about, you talk a lot about the relationship between realism, uh, liberalism, and nationalism, but what about realism and nationalism? To what extent nationalism constrains realpolitik? So when realism is operationalized, uh, 
what, what comes out and what you and Steve Volt always argue is that the U.S. has to constrain exactly because of this powerful force of nationalism. But in that case, doesn't that make wars irrational in the long run? And how yeah. does that add up to the realist logic? Yeah. Let me take one more question. I'll come back down here. There's a woman in the center right here. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. My name is Sana. I'm a graduate of the of Masters in International Strategy and Diplomacy. Um, as you said, actually a lot of countries in the Middle East and the small wars don't really matter to the U.S. However, we see that Israel matters a lot still to the U.S. To the US and I take from what you are saying, Israel should not matter that much. The U.S. does matter to Israel, yeah, military-wise and protection-wise and... Uh, uh, support uh, against other powers in the region, but why is the U.S. so still committed, so committed to, the, to Israel, if according to you it, it shouldn't? Okay, uh, Paul asked the first question, and he said there seems to be a paradox here. Trump is talking about withdrawing from all of these wars that we have been fighting, witness him talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan and Syria, and at the same time, he's increasing the U.S. defense budget. Uh, and what's going on here? This doesn't seem coherent, and is this evidence of the military-industrial complex uh, at play? Uh, let me just start by saying it's very hard to figure out what motivates Trump, period. Uh, he, you know, he flies by the seat of his pants. He, he doesn't seem to have a coherent policy. So it's never terribly clear what he's doing and why he's doing it. Uh, sometimes I wonder, are they getting out of Syria or are they not getting out of Syria? Uh, and, uh, you know, he says he's out of the business of regime change, but he's actually been talking somewhat about regime change in, in Iran. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. But let me give a rational legal explanation for what Trump is doing, right? He's withdrawing from these wars. This is the end of liberal hegemony. He understands these were failed wars. The Crusades are over. And he understands that the real threat on the horizon is China. And because we've foolishly driven the Russians into the arms of the Chinese, the th real threat is not just China, it's Russia. And to deal with China and Russia is going to cost a lot of money. And of course, the military-industrial complex is going to be involved there. So that is what's driving the train, right? Uh, and that sort of squares the circle. Uh, the next question had to do with nationalism constraining realism. Uh, I think there's no question that nationalism constrains realism in the sense that nationalism makes it very hard for countries to go to war against other countries. You know, going back to the very first question I was asked about the rise of China, uh, I've given a talk on why China can't rise peacefully probably 130 times. And I've given it probably 25, 30 times in China. The <laughs> argument that is used against me everywhere I go, it's the key argument that's used against me, is economic interdependence theory. The idea is that China is economically interdependent 
for economic, there's economic interdependence between China and the United States and China and its neighbors. And nobody would start a war because who wants to kill the goose that lays the golden egg? That's the argument that's used against me. And I actually think that's not the best argument to use against me. The best argument to use against me is the nationalism argument married to the nuclear weapons argument. And the argument you want to say is, John, let's get real here. First of all, we live in a nuclear world. The idea that China and the United States are going to duke it out like World War I and World War II is not going to happen. Yeah, there'll be some mild security competition. It won't be very intense like it was in the early Cold War, because in the early Cold War, we were just coming to grips with the nuclear revolution. Now everybody understands the nuclear revolution. The Chinese and the Americans are not going to fight. They may bark at each other. But so that, that's the nuclear weapons argument. And then the second argument is the argument from the gentleman in the audience, which is the nationalism argument. You know, a lot of realists like yours truly feel like peaceniks these days. I end up opposing, you know, I'm supposed to be the prince of darkness, you know, Mr. Realpolitik. I'm, in, I'm against all these wars that all my liberal friends want to fight. It's really quite amazing, right? And I think the fundamental difference between me and them is nationalism. I mean, I think that became manifestly clear in my comments up here. You don't want to go into these places unless you absolutely have to because of nationalism. So again, just building on this gentleman's comments, I think nationalism and nuclear weapons are the two most powerful arguments to use against me, not economic interdependence, although you could package all three of them together. Oh, I have one more question. Yeah. Uh, the question about Israel. Yeah. Uh, a couple of points about Israel. I mean, Steve Walton and I wrote a book on the Israel lobby, which I believe explains why the United States gives such support to Israel. In fact, we stood on this stage and talked uh, about the lobby. Uh, you remember that, Mick. Uh, but uh, uh, just a couple words, because this is very interesting. First of all, the Israelis were basically interested in toppling Assad as well as the Americans. And that has backfired on them big time because they live right next door to Syria. And now they have not only the Russians in Syria, but they have the Iranians in Syria, right? Uh, so that's a problem for the Israelis. Uh, and, uh, but my argument with the Israelis is they can protect themselves. This is, they have the most formidable conventional forces in the mil uh, conventional military forces in the region by far. They have nuclear weapons. No other country has nuclear weapons, right? So the idea that Israel is vulnerable, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who are staunchly pro-Israel think that if the United States doesn't stay in Syria or doesn't stay in Afghanistan or doesn't stay in NATO. This is a disaster for Israel. I actually don't believe that. I believe Israel is perfectly capable of taking care of itself. And there's no evidence that the United States is going to reduce its uh, uh, material and diplomatic support for Israel. Great. Another round. I think we'd have to go to a regular in, in the IR course, Spheres of Influence, down here. So um, here we go. We'll start there. Uh, hi, I'm Jad. I'm a second year IR student here. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, my question is about NATO expansion again. And perhaps it doesn't work very well with defensive realism, but how about uh, an offensive realist lens? 
In that case, perhaps uh, Russian, Russian resurgence doesn't, isn't that relevant anymore. There is space for U.S. to expand and maximize security, so why doesn't it do it? Right. There's a gentleman in a white shirt up against the wall there. Um, you just need to go to the bat. I guess he's got it. Hello. Hi, I'm Samir. Um, you, you talked about the Bush doctrine and Obama's policy in Syria. Trump so far seems to be favoring a more non-interventionist approach to the Middle East. But do you think that that's given, for example, the Saudis a, f a freer hand to uh, invade Yemen or isolate Qatar and whether that could be a destabilizing force? Very good. There's a woman all the way in the back up there in a gray sweater, I think. Yeah. Hi, I'm Caroline. I'm an MSCIP student here. Um, I'm from Canada, and I'm wondering what should the rest of us do? Canadians, Europeans, Australians, other countries that depend on the U.S. Uh, to lead this uh, liberal democratic order, what should we do in the, in the context of rising China and resur resurgence of Russia? What exactly was the question? The question is what should everybody else do in the context of a rising China? What should folks okay. in Canada? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Europe? Yeah. Okay. I think maybe kind of the context is given Trump and where the U.S. is right now. Okay, Judd asked the first question about NATO expansion. And the, the sort of argument is, isn't this real offensive realism? Shouldn't the United States be maximizing security? Uh, there are a number of people who are good friends of mine, you know, other professors, in some cases realists, who don't accept my argument. And they say that really, let me, put that, let me put that differently, they don't accept this argument of mine. They accept a different argument of mine, which is to say, John, what's happening here supports your theory, your theory of offensive realism. The United States won the Cold War, it was the top dog, and it decided that it was going to establish global hegemony. You all know my theory is that you can only establish regional hegemony. You can't establish global hegemony. Globe is too big, right? And it's foolish to try to do that. But they say, no, 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 not in a unipolar world. And therefore, uh, NATO expansion is really not uh, this naive liberal hegemony that you describe. It's really offensive realism uh, on steroids. Uh, and my answer to that is it's really an empirical question, right? It, it may be the case that in 25 years when we have access to the public records that we will discover that this was just all uh, rhetoric and in reality behind closed doors people were talking a very different way. It was all power politics and uh, that what we were trying to do was dominate the globe. Uh, my view is based on all of the evidence that, or the vast majority of the evidence that's available today and talking to people, right, I think it's quite clear that it was liberal hegemony uh, that uh, motivated NATO expansion. It was not realist thinking. And in fact, if you look at how shocked the Obama administration was by the Ukraine crisis. The Ukraine crisis breaks out on February 22nd, 2014. Washington is caught completely off guard. They just didn't expect it. 
and it's because they didn't view Russia as a threat. So I think the evidence is on my side, as you would expect, but I'm open to the possibility that I may be wrong. Um, then the second person asked me the question about Trump's uh, generally non-interventionist tendencies uh, in the Middle East. Isn't this giving Saudi Arabia uh, a free hand to witness what's happened with Yemen, Qatar, so forth and so on? Uh, I think there's no question that's true. Uh, I, I think that Jared Kushner and Trump both like uh, the Saudi prince, and they've basically given him the green light. I don't know if it has so much to do with his Trump's non-interventionism. He, he, this is his kind of guy, and he wants to give him plenty of running room. The problem is the guy is a bumbling idiot, right? It's really quite remarkable. Uh, everything he touches uh, fails, right? I mean, kidnaps the Lebanese uh, president. Uh, the war in Yemen, that's really going well, isn't it? He create a human rights disaster, uh, the whole business with Qatar, uh, and then assassinating uh, uh, someone in the uh, Turkish embassy uh, in this day and age with cameras all over the place so that you can quickly figure out, you know, who did it. Uh, so uh, I think Trump is basically giving the Saudis the rope to hang themselves. And the end result of this is it's making it very difficult for Trump and Jared Kushner to put together a coalition to go after Iran, uh, which may be the one positive benefit of this whole fiasco. Oh, and then, oh, what should everyone else do who's facing China? Well, I think that if you look at a lot of the countries in East Asia today, it's quite clear that uh, security considerations say do one thing and economic considerations do say to do another thing. If you're Australia, you have all sorts of incentives to trade with China, uh, to have cooperative relations, and to have a lot of economic intercourse. Uh, on the security front, you have the Americans uh, pushing you very hard uh, you know, to be part of their balancing coalition against China, right? So security points in one direction, economics points in another direction. And the question is, if you're Australia, you're South Korea, you're Japan, Singapore, what are you going to do down the road? And I'm a big believer that security almost always trumps economic considerations. Or to put it in even simpler terms, I believe that security trumps prosperity when the rubber hits the road. So I think all of those countries in East Asia uh, will eventually side with the United States against China if there is, as I said before, an intense security competition. Uh, and I think once that happens, even economic relations will become more competitive. Uh, and in countries like Australia, and South Korea and Japan, there'll be more fear of Chinese economic dominance. So that would be my view on that one. Okay. We've got time, I think, at least for one more round here. How about this gentleman right up here in the front? He's had his hand up the entire time. So, um, 
Hi, um, sorry. My, my name is Tian, and uh, I'm, an, I'm a student of economics and uh, politics, but in uh, Burbank University of London. And my question is about my country, Vietnam. And do you reconsider that Vietnam is a failure of um, the liberal hegemony? Because um, you know that Vietnam War was a fail or the failure of America. But the thing is, America now they say that. Um, Vietnam is maybe we we did we did the wrong thing about the war, but we did the right thing. We we opened the country, and now people are just like they just only see the capitalism in there and the liberalism. They don't see any more the communists in there. So do you reconsider about Vietnam was a failure of the U.S. Taking the long view on Vietnam, right? I think long view meaning. Like looking back on Vietnam today and where Vietnam is today, I think is what the question was. Okay. Um, so, uh, how about the the woman right over there in the purple? Right. Hello. Thank you very much. I'm Sonia from Mauritius. I'm a master student here. Um, my question is about the region of the Indian Ocean, more specifically African countries or the little islands, which we haven't talked about. Given the um, rising um, animosity between the U.S. and China, what do you think? Is there an increased relevance of this area of the world, the Indian Ocean? Thank you. Yeah. This woman right in here, uh, in the middle, hands up high. Right. Yeah. Hi, Professor Mearsheimer. I'm, my name is Maggie, and we're from, we're our students from King's College London. Um, wrong territory here, sorry. Um, so, um, in your talk, you've mentioned um, kind of pursuing peace with a goal of self-preservation and sometimes to undermine the powers of the other powers. So would you say this is viable, a viable solution to pursue kind of a global peace on the grand scheme? And also, um, we have a question um, on how would you view the scholarly trends in IR uh, nowadays that turn towards constructivism and other critical s theories such as feminist theories? And do you think... Okay, that, that's it. Thank you. That's great. Oh, uh, sorry. Okay. Uh, do, do you think that uh, systemic change would be realizable or beneficial for global politics? Thank you very much. You, you can pick one of those. <laughs> she violated the rule. Um, so you can pick, pick one of those. Thanks very much. So we've got about, we've got five minutes here, so I think that you'll just take it home now. Yeah, I just would say, before I answer any of the questions, thanks for the excellent questions. One of the real problems in answering these questions is they're all sort of big questions, and uh, I want to spend uh, a half hour on each one, but I won't. Uh, Vietnam, uh, you asked whether it's a failure of liberal hegemony. Uh, the United States, for I think good historical reasons, did virtually nothing to promote liberal democracy uh, in Vietnam uh, after 1990. Uh, we stayed away. Uh, I think sadly Vietnam, I, I want to be clear here, despite the fact I think liberal hegemony is a terrible foreign policy, uh, as I make clear in the book, I consider myself very fortunate to live in a liberal democracy. I'm not bashing liberal democracy per se. I'm bashing liberal foreign policy. 
and I think that the best political order is a liberal democracy. So I'm glad I live in a liberal democracy. And I, from the outside looking in, would think it would be for the best for the people in Vietnam if they lived in a liberal democracy. I do believe in self-determination, so it's up to them to figure out what kind of political system they have. I'm not going to come over there and do social engineering like most of my uh, fellow citizens. But, but anyway, uh, you don't have liberal hegemony, and I don't think you're going to get liberal hegemony. And I don't know why that's the case. Or You don't have liberal democracy, and you're not going to get liberal democracy. I don't know why that's the case. But I would imagine the war has something to do with that. It would be very interesting to sort of explore what the consequences of the Vietnam War, to go back to the first war against the French and then the second war against the Americans, and what the consequences of that were on you know, political development inside Vietnam. But again, I don't know much. Question about the Indian Ocean, really interesting question. Just to go up to 60,000 feet for a second, as I said in my answer to Peter before, there are three areas of the world that I think are of great strategic importance to the United States. Europe, East Asia, and the Gulf. Great powers, great powers, oil. Historically, <laughs> historically, Europe has been the most important area of the world for the United States. We, we went into World War II with a Europe-first policy, and even though Japan attacked us at Pearl Harbor, it was not the Germans who attacked us at Pearl Harbor, we had a Europe-first policy during the war. During the Cold War, Europe was the center of the universe in security. It was not East Asia. We are now undergoing a fundamental transformation in the United States. Europe is the most important, I mean, East Asia is the most important area of the world for the United States. The Gulf is the second most important area of the world. And the third most important area, and it's a distant third, is Europe. Okay? Now, the reason that the Gulf is so important is not simply because all that oil is there, but it's because China gets 25% of its oil from the Gulf. And that number is expected to go up 35%, 40% over time. So the Chinese will tell you behind closed doors, they're going to build a blue water navy, and they're going to use that blue water navy to project power into the Persian Gulf. Right? And by the way, just to go back to Iran, one of the reasons our policy towards Iran is so cockamamie, as is our policy towards Russia, is we've already driven the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. We're going to drive the Iranians into the arms of the Chinese. And if you go around to Iran today, you see hardly any evidence of American influence, and you see lots of evidence of Chinese influence. And from a geopolitical or geostrategic point of view, this is stupid. But anyway, I'm getting off the topic. The Chinese have deep-seated interest in the Gulf. It's going to grow with time, and they're going to build the Blue Water Navy. That's why East Asia and the Gulf are going to be linked. This brings me to the question. The Indian Ocean, to get from East Asia to the Gulf, you've got to go through the Indian Ocean. And you can talk to the Indians. The Indians have figured this one out for themselves. And they understand the Chinese are going to be coming through the Straits of Malacca into the Indian Ocean, heading towards the Gulf with a blue water navy. It's only a matter of time. So from India's point of view, there are two big security issues. One are the border 
disputes they have with China. And remember, they were barking at each other last summer, and you know, it looked for a while like they may even start shooting at each other. But that's one point of conflict between China and India. The second one is the Indian Ocean. And the Indians are really worried about that. And of course, the Americans are very worried about that as well. Uh, final question. Uh, actually, it was the final three questions, so I get to pick one. Let me make one very quick comment and then talk about scholarly trends in IR. Uh, just on global peace, you know, what can be done to facilitate global peace. Uh, I don't believe that states do much to facilitate global peace, except in unipolarity, right? I believe when you're in a bipolar world like the Cold War, or you're in the multipolar world that we're now moving into, the great powers are not interested in facilitating peace. They're interested in competing with each other. That's not to say you're going to have war. It's just to say that peace is not the goal. The goal is to maintain a favorable position in the balance of power. The argument I was making in the talk here is that in the unipolar world, you don't have to worry about the balance of power. And if you have this universalistic ideology, see, liberalism is a universalistic ideology, you then begin thinking about shaping the world in your own image for the purposes of making it a more peaceful world. So that's the only circumstance under which I think global peace becomes relevant. Uh, you were just asking me what are the scholarly trends in IR, and in particular with regard to constructivism. I would say, and this will be maybe shocking to a lot of people in this audience, that in the context, in the American context, uh, constructivism is not doing very well at all. Uh, and uh, there was a period, uh, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s when constructivism was riding high in the saddle. Uh, Alex Went was enormously influential uh, in American academia, and there were a good number of other social constructivists who held sway. But I think at this point in time, uh, you know, Alex is out of the business. He doesn't do IR. He, he, will, he will explicitly tell you he doesn't do IR anymore. And uh, there is no sort of successor to him. So constructivism uh, is on the wane. And it's, I think, due in part to the mathematization of political science in general and IR in particular in the United States. Most graduate students are trained uh, in ways that emphasize not so much formal theory, but quantitative methods, experiments, and so forth and so on. And if you're trained in that direction and the faculty are telling you if you want to get a job, you have to develop those skills, uh, it's uh, something like constructivism or critical theory or feminist IR theory is going to be crowded out very quickly. And uh, I think that's exactly what's happening. It's another form of liberal hegemony. So, yeah, yeah. The, this, is, this is another whole subject. Uh, another whole subject. Yes. But we can't we can't pursue it because Lewis Hartz, yeah. Lewis Hartz, yeah. the liberal tradition in America. You should all read it. Sorry, we're plumb out of time. I know that we could keep John here for the rest of the evening asking, you know, po putting questions to him. He'd probably stay for the rest of the evening <laughs> answering. Um, I, I want to thank all of you for coming and giving John a, 
a run for his money. And, uh, and John is always great president.